You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Our guest today is someone I'm, I'm pleased to say has been a, a guest on, on several of our, our podcasts over, over the last couple of years because he knows so much and he's so much a part of, uh, of, of Louisiana. This is uh, Jim Brown, who's a uh, um, former insurance commissioner, former secretary of state and former state senator. And now he's kind of a, a journalist and free spirit and just has a, a, a lot to talk about. And we're going to cash in on that because I have Three topics in particular I want to talk to you about. Uh, Jim, let me ask you, first of all, you do publications under the name Lisburn Press. What is That's Lisburn? correct. Uh, uh, I, I do, Errol. Uh, I started that press. Uh, when I published my first book, uh, I found out that the publishing companies were taking all the money. Uh-huh. You know, John Grissom publishes a $30 book and gets about a buck fifty for in return. <laughs> And I said, well, I'm not going to do that. I want to make more money than that. So I started my own publishing company. I published probably 45 books, I think, to date. Ed, the book about Governor Edwin Edwards, uh, the governor of Louisiana, is probably the best-selling book by a Louisiana author in the history of Louisiana, selling over 200,000 copies. So is, I that think- book that, is that a book that you wrote? No, I didn't write that. Uh, I Actually, a fellow died last week, a fellow named B.I. Moody, a, a very top businessman, owned uh, uh, the Moody newspaper chain, about 40 newspapers in the state. B.I. had asked me to write the book after he'd read my book, uh, my first book. It was just a, a huge undertaking, though, I knew. It would be two years of research. Mm-hmm. And so I interviewed a number of authors, ended up hiring Leo Honeycutt to write that book. Okay. And, uh, Leo was supposed to have it done in about a year and a half. He took almost three and a half years to finish, but it's been a huge success for Leo, and he's gone on to write a number of other books about prominent Louisianians. Okay. Well, let's talk about a couple of your your, uh, your most recent columns. Um, there's one where you thought of, you're talking about that you're at a, uh, I don't know, grocery store or something, and a, a woman comes up to you, and there's an LSU game coming up that, that weekend, and she says, all right, going to be at Tiger Stadium. And you said no, and then you go on to, this opens the way in your columns, you say you probably might not ever be at Tiger Stadium again. And then you, you talk about what's happened, I guess college football in general, but certainly LSU in particular, that the way it's changed and what the problems are. So have that, what's wrong? Well, there's been a tremendous change over the years. And it's not, you know, uh, I made it clear to that lady that stopped and asked me, that's not that LSU lost its first football game with so much optimism. But it's just the whole flavor of LSU in particular and college football in general. Uh, We have a university today that uh, has this $10 million a year coach that comes in and joins the fray of wealthy coaches who uh, he brought in uh, any number of transfers who came in and uh, to playing. Uh, the average, the uh, L- every LSU football player now makes twenty five thousand dollars a year minimum. 
You've got some that make as much as $700,000 a year with this NIL program that's put in place right now. And it just and when, when you say they make that money, that's not money that the university is paying to them directly. Yes, yes. The university pays them $25,000 a year each. Every LSU football player gets that, that minimum amount of money. So uh, is, that, is, is that legal throughout the NCAA? Or? Yeah, all the major programs do okay. it. It's not just LSU. All the major programs do okay. it. And so uh, uh, any event, uh, uh, LSU has gone to money making at any uh, juncture they can grab a hold of. Started with the alcohol sales uh, in, in Tiger Stadium. And then it went to uh, the gambling. LSU has sanctioned gambling. Now, you know, in Louisiana, Errol, it's against the law for someone under 21 years of age to gamble in Louisiana, sports betting. It's against the law. LSU sanctioned and was participatory in sending out a letter to every single student at LSU saying, hey, join Caesars. It's a great sports uh, venue for you to place your bets completely against the law. They did it, and they did it because they were paid a lot of money by this Caesars organization. And it, I, when I read about it, I couldn't believe it. And I called their hand in a column here about eight, nine months ago, and uh, uh, it got some publicity out of that. Now they uh, said, well, they've cut all those ties, and it was a mistake to solicit those under 21. So go after the Bucks. I mean, uh, so you got the alcohol, you've got the sports betting, you kind of, I wonder what is cannabis next? Is marijuana the next thing we're going to be selling in Tiger Stadium? I, I guess so, off the path that it's taking. So, uh, so. And then the first factor, which a lot of people might not be aware of this, so it's called the NIL, okay? And this is a system that actually allows players to make money for their. Uh, for advertising, like uh, the NIL stands for name, image, and likeness, and it's legal for them to be able to be in contract and sign those things. It is, and uh, there's been pressure on that for a number of years, and finally the NCAA has caved in to saying that players that take all this money are not professional. In the past, they'd be considered professional, and uh, so it's happening all over the country that these players, I think, uh, the Manning, uh, young Manning boys at the University of Texas, he's a third string there, and he makes about $2 million a year through the NIL, paying for by, uh, by, by the number of people that go on his Facebook page and his various social media, and a variety of factors go into the payments. Sports Illustrated just a couple of weeks ago came out with its cover. On his cover were two LSU gymnasts, uh, 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 rather one LSU gymnast, Olivia Dunn, who makes over $2 million a year, and Angel Reese, the uh, wonderful basketball player at LSU. Uh, and she's paid up in the, over the million dollars a year. Uh, they were in the cover of Sports Illustrated, like I said. So that's something that has been allowed by the NCAA. And, uh, and that's one factor. But with this transfer portal, you know, here's what happened, Errol. In the old days, we'd watch our high school kids in Louisiana move up in ranks as they got better and better. Hopefully, they'd go to LSU or Tulane on a scholarship. Then they'd go there, and then after they finished their four years, they were there for four years. Uh, then they'd go back to their local community in Louisiana. And I'm talking about people like Tommy Casanova, three-time All-American 
from Crowley. He's now uh, a doctor in, in Crowley. Uh, I'm talking about Burt Jones up in Ruston, who's in the family tree business. He was an All-American at LSU. Of course, everybody's All-American, Billy Cannon. He, uh, All-American, and then now he's, a before his death just two years ago, he was the dentist up at uh, Angola State Penitentiary. So we had these Louisiana kids who were part of the fabric that represented Louisiana. Now they're one and done. They blow in here for a year. Uh, maybe they got uh, one or two years eligibility. If they don't like how the playing time is going, they up and transfer to some other school. Yeah, so let's, so explain this. let's explain this in case somebody's not familiar. This is what's called the transfer portal. And there is a system where they, uh, is it the NCAA where it, uh, it publishes, it posts a list of what spots are available to other universities and players can look at it, they can apply for it. Um, and so they can they can request a transfer if they want to. And well, a lot of kids do that with vigor. You could do that in the old days one time. You could transfer one time, but you'd have to lay out a year if you did so. That was the old rule. Under this rule, you can transfer uh, immediately, and and uh, uh, and then you start playing that very next year. You don't have to lay out a year. So you've got players at LSU that have been to uh, two and three different schools, and they end up at LSU, have one-year eligibility, and out they go again. They leave the state. They bring no value to the state outside of maybe being able to hit a tackle pretty hard for a year. Then they're gone. So to me, what they what's become, Errol, is becomes professional football. We have a minor professional football team here, and all your major colleges have that. Now, you know, there's a certain number of fan base that just don't care. They like it, uh, just like they like the Saints as a professional team. But it just, to me, doesn't pass a smell test. I don't like it, and I don't think the big a, a university should be paying $10 million to the, a year to the coach and have all these attributes going on while professors are paid a pittance and where the library leaks. If you go into the library at LSU, they can't fix the roof but they can sure pay all of all he fixed the other athletic uh, uh, facilities. And uh, tell you one more thing, Errol, uh, the uh, ESPN interviewed uh, the coach at LSU and uh, Dan uh, Kelly is his name. And uh, here's what he said. Let me quote the whole landscape there. He's talking about Notre Dame where he came from. The whole landscape there is different than it is here. It just is. There are priorities at Notre Dame. The architectural building needed to get built first. They ain't no building the architect's building here first. We're building the athletic training facility here first. Well, I wrote in my column, well put, coach, to hell with academics at LSU. It's all about football. It's all about football. Yeah. Well, uh, I agree with your sentiment, but I've heard your argument before. You know, is it fair to pay a football coach so much more than, than a chemistry professor. And the one argument I would make is that a chemistry professor does not have to fill a stadium, okay, uh, where, the, where the football coach does. Well, and we want the stadiums fill, filled at the Superdome in New Orleans for, uh, for the Saints. Is it the emphasis or is it the mission of LSU to put that flow and and spend those dollars and have your football cake coach say, we're going to build the athletic facilities before we even consider a new uh, chemistry building or architect's building. 
And so is that, it's just a question of the mission. I mean, uh, the uh, a U.S. News and World Report rankings came out two weeks ago. LSU is ranked 199th, 199th. Errol, there was probably 20 schools on the list that I've never even heard of before. And yet LSU is ranked 199th. So well, we're in the top 10 in football, 199th in academics. And you wonder, what is the mission of LSU? Uh, to me, the mission is what Huey Long said. Uh, uh, Bob Mann, uh, who's at LSU, great professor, wrote a new book called about uh, Huey Long and LSU. And he said when Huey Long was governor, he said that he was going to make uh, LSU the Harvard of the South. And he did a good job. He's, he built facilities and he was very supportive of football, but he was very supportive of the university. I was up in North Carolina where I went to college. That, that's ranked number fourth in the country, by the way, at Chapel Hill, my alma mater. And a fellow up there said, Jim, what happened down there at LSU? If you go back to the 40s and 50s and 60s, you had two great universities in the South. You had the University of North Carolina and yet LSU. The North Carolina Press, the LSU Press at LSU had uh, all these wonderful authors that were there uh, that, that uh, uh, wrote marvelous works. Uh, and, and so many outstanding people who were there. Hubert Humphrey, you know, on his quest to be president was at LSU. And so... Uh, uh, what happened? And uh, uh, we could talk about that in a whole separate program, but it's just a shame that we're ranked 199th today, our flagship university, and that's the kind of education our kids are being offered. Now, now the LSU baseball team, which won the national championship this year, weren't many of those players transfer portal players? Yeah, they were. They were. A number of them were tra transferred in. Uh, uh, they had uh, They had a base of kids that came in as freshmen and stayed there. But uh, uh, there were a number of transfer portals there as there were in women's basketball. You know, uh, Kim Mulkey, the outstanding coach for LSU, who by the way, is paid like $3 million a year for, but they they packed the, the people in, no doubt about that. But uh, uh, the LSU women's basketball team, most of the players there started were all transfer portals, ladies who'd been to several other schools before they landed at LSU. And I think um, I Paul Skeens, who, who was their uh, all-star pitcher. That's right. Transfer portal thing. That's right. He transferred in. Yeah. And great pitcher, wonderful. But uh, uh, like I say, he's a hired gun, and he's gone on to make a lot of money and more power to him. I'm just saying that uh, – do we, is that what we want? And if a majority of the folks uh, uh, treasure uh, the sports flow of, uh, over academics, well, then we're a democracy. But I don't think it's healthy for the state at all. Right. Um, now, we shouldn't mention there's a thing called the Tiger Athletic Foundation, which is an independent organization which raises money to support LSU sports. They do, and they control the, all the better football ticket seats. If you want seats, you if you want good seats, you pretty much got to contribute to the LSU uh, to to the foundation. You certainly don't get a box up in the stadium without contributing heavily to the foundation, and uh, uh, so you uh, so they run the wing of raising all this money uh, for LSU. 
when they wanted to get rid of Ed Orgeron, the coach that won the national championship when Joe Burrow was our quarterback. They decided to get rid of, uh, and I say they, there is a, it's not just the athletic uh, uh, director, it's a combination of those folks in the Tiger Athletic Foundation and uh, those that represent uh, uh, the, the LSU board. Uh, they, uh, uh, when they went to do that, uh, the money was raised. In fact, uh, I, th I heard someone say that one of the athletic directors said, uh, uh, we need to, his buyouts, uh, $25 million. He says, I can raise that in an afternoon through the, uh, through the foundation. So, uh, you have some major givers who give money to the athletic department. There's no doubt about that. And, uh, more, and I'm glad they're doing it. I just wish there'd be that kind of flow to the, uh, to the school itself. Errol, I checked, I haven't checked in the last six months, but a year ago I checked. LSU, except for Mississippi State in the Southeast Conference, LSU has the lowest endowment of any school in the Southeast Conference. Ole Miss has a higher endowment. Auburn, Alabama, all those schools. Uh, Florida's got four or five times what our endowment is here. So the endowment, my mama moderate North Carolina is about $3 billion of their endowment. LSU is maybe $800 million, I'm guessing. So uh, they're just not in the league of raising money from distinguished alumni. The athletic department can do it. Football can do it. As someone said in LSU, there's three priorities at LSU. Number one is football. Number two is football. And what's number three? Uh, uh, oh, yeah, football. Football, mm -hmm. those are the three priorities there. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, do you still watch the games on, like, on TV? I do. I watched it on TV, and I would have watched it uh, if if none of this was going on. You know, Saturday night uh, they have a get home game this Saturday night. We invite some friends over, and uh, I'm getting up in age to where it's hard. You know, you the game's over, and you may not get home to one thirty in the morning. So I like to watch the game and maybe uh, have a beverage, and I'm in bed thirty minutes after after it's over. So. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I don't consider me a fair weather friend, but not in the old days where you went and tailgated and cheered yeah. the Tigers on. Well, going to those stadiums and parking and getting to your seat and, and, and leaving and being in traffic, that could be a chore, you know, you know? Um, especially if the game wasn't satisfying. Well, let me talk about your other column um, that you did. And this was talking about, you know, there are several political trials coming up, uh, several with Donald Trump. And the issue is raised, it's, it's not a new issue, but it's been talked about before, about al allowing TV broadcasts of trials. Now it's been done before, um, but there's a lot of people that are against it, including as you point out the Supreme Court. What's the status on that issue and how do you feel about it? Well, the US Supreme Court has prohibited televising trials before the Supreme Court itself. There have been a few federal judges who have allowed television in the courtroom. I think it's it's uh, uh, very important that we allow these trials. Donald Trump is going to have four different trials in four different jurisdictions. And I think it would be riveting, like the O.J. Simpson trial, like the Watergate hearings. I think it's very important for Americans to see democracy in action. And uh, uh, these, you know, I, I think the judges don't want to face the scrutiny. They don't want people looking at what they're doing on the bench in the courtroom. Uh, there's been some recent polls out, Errol, that I think I noted in my column where uh, 
Uh, 45% of Americans feel like the, judi the judicial system in America is unfair. Almost half of Americans feel that way. They don't know, above, know enough about the workings, of internal workings of the court. And I think it, it would make a huge difference to televise and have these open trials. You know, in the old days, uh, before any type of, of media that we have today, uh, people flocked to the trials. Uh, the older courthouses in Louisiana are big inside. They can hold three and 400 people. That's because people wanted to come and watch the trials and, and see exactly what took place. And, and uh, it was very, very helpful. So we have a whole tradition of open trials and public trials in Louisiana. And now we've got these judges that, that uh, put uh, gag orders and, and, and put secret juries together to where the jury can't be identified. And, and our trials have become far from public in Louisiana. I know personally, you know, most of your listeners know that I had a run-in with the federal government. There were gag orders in place and there were uh, secret juries. And uh, the jury, in my particular case, Errol, my family could not sit in the courtroom to see the jury get picked. That was prohibited by a federal judge, a guy named Frank Polozola. They call him the, uh, the Ayatollah Polozola is what he referred <laughs> to and, uh, before he passed away. He's no longer living. But uh, we've had a, a, a poor tradition in Louisiana in some instances. But uh, the fact remains that there's going to be widespread interest in, in uh, the trials. It's a marvelous teaching moment for democracy, uh, for our schools, and for the general public. And I think it's important. Now, one of the knocks is, well, if you have them open to the public, then there's going to be a lot of grandstanding by the uh, defense lawyers and the other lawyers in the case. And we don't want to have that thing going on. Uh, I think one of the first public trials in Louisiana that was televised, uh, I participated in. I was the insurance commissioner. Uh, Congressman, brother at the time, Senator Cleo Fields uh, was defending, and I was pushing a, a law in Louisiana to seize the cars of those who had not been insured. I thought that it, it was the impoundment law. I thought it was a good law. It would get insurance rates to take a huge drop down. And uh, so we had a trial before the uh, Louisiana Supreme Court. It was televised. I didn't even know the camera, pay any attention to the cameras. I knew they were there. There was no grandstanding going on. It went on without a hitch. And uh, even in the O.J. Simpson trial, they were high-profile lawyers. But I thought the judge did a pretty good job of keeping everybody in check. There was no, nothing blatant to the jury. <clears throat> you know, if it fits, uh, then you must acquit. Well, that's something you can say in any kind of a trial, you know, that you saw in the, in the Simpson trial. So uh, uh, as I, I think I said before, when that jury came in, there was over 150 million people glued to their TV sets to see the verdict in the O.J. Simpson trial. And Donald Trump is going to produce the same kind of interest. So I think it's a marvelous teaching moment. And I think those judges who opt to not have a public trial are making a huge mistake. And it's just not fair to an American democracy like ours to let that take place. But isn't it good for the identity of the jury to not be known? Um, you know, somebody sees somebody and say, hey, I know that guy's wife, I know that guy's kid, you know? And I mean, it seems like it's, 
Well, you can tell, you can, you know, the cameras, you can put some restrictions on the cameras. If that's of concern, you say, oh, we don't want the, jur the uh, jurors to be on camera. You know, we want the jurors focused on the, uh, the defendant, the, uh, uh, the, the lawyers on both sides and the judge. So that can be controlled by just who's on camera. It's not a free for all where you, you can uh, watch everybody, every little move. And so, uh, uh, so I think most jurors, quite frankly, would love to be on camera to tell you the truth. But that was a concern. You said, okay, we got cameras in the courtroom, folks, but it's not going to be appointed, appointed to the jury. That would be a way to easily take care of that concern, Errol. Now, you mentioned the O.J. Simpson trial. I've heard that used as an example of why you don't want TV coverage. If people say just the opposite, would you say, say you know, look at the O.J. Simpson trial. That was a, it was a circus. It was a mess. I mean, um, I, I don't know. It, it has been used as an argument against TV coverage. Well, I, I watched the O.J. Simpson trial uh, and uh, uh, watched exactly what took place there. And by the way, I'm, a, I'm an attorney. Uh, I was a criminal attorney in my early years of privacy law. I held, I uh, handled capital cases. I had a number of profile cases where the uh, uh, where the uh, uh, courthouse was packed with people. And so uh, uh, I think that anything that was said or grandstanding by the jury was in the limits of what you'd find in any courthouse. In any courthouse, where you'd find that same thing. I didn't see something that was so blatant and get out of hand. And, you know, most decent federal judges will say, will lay the ground rules out, saying, well, look, attorneys, uh, uh, you're on TV, but we're not going to let this get out of hand. And that's the, that's the judge's job of sanctioning those attorneys or keeping control of his courtroom or her courtroom. So uh, I don't think because there might be a little grandstanding or the judge may be uh, uh, lets a lawyer cross the line is enough to keep Amer the American public from seeing democracy in action. I think you got to weigh. There are some maybe cons, but I think the pros far outweigh the cons in making these trials public. Okay. We're, um, we're talking to Jim Brown, former Secretary of State, former Insurance Commissioner, former State Senator, all-time uh, observer of Louisiana and uh, and a, uh, a writer and has his own publishing company and his own column. Um, this next thing is not about a column per se, but it's about your past career. There's a big furor in the state about insurance. Um, in fact, the uh, the newly elected insurance commissioner has already said that when he gets in office, he's going to ask for a, a special session. And I've seen two debates where the candidates for governor are or ask, would you favor a special session about insurance? And they all say, yeah. So it looks like we're definitely heading there. What's the problem? What's wrong? Well, there's a variety of things wrong. It may be a little worse right now when it comes to the weather. We're having uh, changes. People don't want to call it climate change, but whatever they want to call it, uh, the weather activity is different today than it was 15, 20 years ago. We're not having... Uh, the number of weather-related instances, not just in the Gulf, you see, the fear used to be uh, hurricanes, but now we've got these wildfires that are taking place. We've got this heavy, heavy flooding taking place, uh, the threat of earthquakes, 
there are a variety of factors that just weren't regular in the past, and that certainly has played into the overall cost. But what's happened is, Errol, we can't do it alone. There's nothing a lot we can do in Louisiana. We're just one small state along the entire Gulf Coast. And uh, I had proposed as far going back to when I was insurance commissioner back in 1996, I testified before Congress saying, look, we got a massive problem down there. You need to help us create a, a, a catastrophic coverage, an umbrella around the south of the states along the Gulf Coast. Where, the, where we can get reinsurance, where there is a reinsurance program in place. What you do is take a, a, a small percentage of everybody's policy, put it into a fund, and the fund would protect states like uh, all together, Florida, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, Louisiana, Texas. And I didn't get much traction out of that. Senator John Bro got that legislation to the U.S. Senate but it got stalled and never got any traction in the House of Representatives. And so um, uh, what I'm glad to see is our new insurance commissioner, Tim Temple, has picked up on that idea and says that's one of the things he wants to push very, very hard. Now, the key, the problem is, Errol, that we have an elected commissioner. Uh, most states along the Gulf South have an appointed commissioner. Uh, they don't have an elected commissioner. And if the governor appoints the commissioner, then the governor has the buck stop with him. He's going to have to get involved. Our governor, when asked about insurance issues, says, oh, yeah, we got to do something. To, uh, go talk to the insurance commissioner. The governor doesn't take on any responsibility. And so uh, if you're going to go to Congress, the insurance commissioner doesn't carry the weight that a governor does. So uh, Tim Temple, our new insurance commissioner, I think is on the right track by saying, Let's really explore putting the Gulf states together to get an umbrella coverage over us. So, and they, what it would work is uh, State Farm, for example, or any insurance company, they insured your home and the home was hit very hard. They would pay up to a certain amount and above a certain amount, the uh, multi-state umbrella would kick in. It's something that makes a lot of sense, and I think we're seeing a lot more interest in it today, and Tim is pushing it. So that's going to be a major factor, quite frankly, in terms of homeowners insurance, property insurance. Now, flood insurance is a unique program because it's run by the federal government. Uh, Senator Kennedy and Senator Casty and uh, Congressman Scalise are all very actively involved in trying to uh, extend the federal insurance program for flood. And also, uh, uh, there's a lot of questions about how the ratings have taken place. And they're getting into that to try to find ways to make it more affordable. So it's going to be always be higher. There's no doubt about it. But there are things we can do to kind of tie that down. Auto insurance is a whole different issue. We've got some unique problems in Louisiana. We've got bad roads. Uh, and one of the reasons is where we live, Errol. You know, you go through Texas, you scrape off some uh, some hard dirt and pour a little blacktop down, and you've got a four-lane highway. In Louisiana, you got to drive pilings, and you've got you can't put shoulders in the road. We're a swamp in many parts of the state, and so it's going to be a lot more expensive to build roads in Louisiana. More accidents take place. That is a factor. There's no doubt about it. Second of all, you know, we've got a lot of DWIs in the state. We live a, a easy, free uh, life down here. 
Uh, my friends who come in to visit from up north are just dumbfounded that we have drive-through daiquiri sh uh, shops that are open 24 hours a day. Used to be Shreveport in northeast Louisiana, northwest Louisiana, were more conservative. But with the casinos going in up there, they want the bars open all night long. So that's a, more of a problem for us. So we've got some lifestyle problems that have to be uh, addressed by much stronger enforcement. Uh, but the big thing I think facing most Louisianians is the property insurance. And I think Tim Temple's on the right track with, as he starts on his quest to try to bring a number of states together, which is what we need to do. Why have these accident lawyers become such a big business? You know, hit by a truck, call us. And there's so many of them, and they all advertise all the time. So they must be having, they make a lot of money with the amount of advertising they do. What's what's the rub here? How's this working out? Well, uh, I, I drove from North Carolina down here about three weeks ago, and you come down through South Carolina and into Georgia and the Atlanta area. And Atlanta seemed like every the billboard was a trial attorney uh, there uh, on the billboard advertising for accidents. So it's not unique to Louisiana, number one. There's a lot of advertising going on. Number two, you know, we don't have punitive damages in Louisiana. In Louisiana, you get pretty much uh, the damages you have uh, uh, for, for your accident, the actual damages. But in very rare instances, do we have punitive damages? Texas has punitive damages. Mississippi has punitive damages. We don't hear. So the awards really may, aren't nearly as high, uh, number two. Number three, I think the defense bar has extended this problem because uh, they they want to uh, they are uh, they want to limit what when the lawsuit can, rather they want to extend the time the lawsuits can be filed and you know the, the, those defense lawyers and I've been both a defense and a uh, plaintiff's lawyer on both sides when you're a defense lawyer you're paid by the hour the longer the case draws out the more money you make. So there's a lot of fault to go around. I don't think you can blame it all on the lawyers. Yes, there's a prolifera of, uh, of advertising going on, probably too much, but I'm not sure how you control that. And uh, uh, and we do, you know, when you have uh, a a, uh, a populist that's driving automobiles, uh, say below a certain income level, there's a higher degree of lawsuits that are fi filed. But if you look at where our average rate is uh, in terms of, of Louisiana for automobile, we're on par with Michigan, with New Jersey. So it's just not unique to Louisiana. You're seeing rates go on all over the country. And there's a variety of reasons, some of which I've mentioned, the alcohol and the bad roads. And uh, But uh, do trial lawyers, they're in part of the mix because they're advertising? Yeah, I think so. But is it the main reason, no, I think it's one factor of a number. Well, it just makes you think they do so much advertising. They obviously have, have a lot of money, okay? I mean, there's one firm in particular. I mean, they're all over all the time. I, I just wonder what's going on, okay? Well, there are. But again, no, no, uh, again, I'll just point out to you, uh, if you drive to Atlanta, you get, when I drove to Atlanta, I was just amazed at the number of billboard advertisements that are taking place and the TV, the number, uh, I'm up there in the mountains. I've got a summer place up in the mountains and uh, we watch the Charlotte station 
And I mean, it seems like every other ad on TV in Charlotte, North Carolina is some lawyer advertising his wares. Yeah. And so uh, uh, I don't think it's, it, it, if it's a problem, it's not a problem unique to Louisiana. Okay, and the last thing let's talk about briefly with old fashioned politics, especially okay, next year at the presidential election. I have not been impressed with the president for a while, either the incumbent president or the president that preceded him. It seems to me in a nation like this, there are some good people out there who could be good presidents. Is there anybody, not necessarily a candidate, they could be a candidate, not, not identified with party, just as, is there anybody that you're aware of that you think, boy, I wish this person would be president? Well, it's a question of setting your priorities. I think, first of all, there's a number of good people that we could name. They don't want to be part of the process. Who would want to go through, if there's not a big ego involved and you don't have tremendous financial resources, either, either your own or groups that support you very, very early, uh, then and you run a race that lasts, it used to be you'd run six months or a year. Now you start running, there will be candidates sitting their sights in the presidency within a month after the election takes place for 2024. They start organizing. They start campaigns. They say, well, we're raising money for our PAC because we're a senator or a congressman. Uh, we're not saying we're running for president. Well, they, everybody knows they are. So it drives an awful lot of good people, some, some solid business people some uh, university uh, presidents, uh, some solid people in, in uh, a cross-section of the community that would normally be pretty good presidents, but wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. Who would want to get into politics? And Errol, I don't think it's just a national problem. I think it's a Louisiana problem, too, or a state problem. I can tell you right now, if I were, uh, if I had a fairly clean record and I was 45, 50 years old and someone suggested I run for the legislature or run for a statewide office, I'd say, are you kidding? I wouldn't consider doing something like that. To be so tied down and to be so involved, to be accused of everything. I mean, if you're on a library board, you get plummeted here in Louisiana today. So uh, uh, you've got to be a special animal who's got a very tough hide who puts up with something like that. So, yes, there are a number of good people, I think, that could lead this country, but uh, they don't want any part of it. And so we go, go through the ranks of U.S. senators, and we've got some fine U.S. senators, but they don't have any management experience in running the nuts and bolts of government. But often that's where some of our ranks will come from. Governors, you think, would be a little bit more qualified, but it's a big, big country. And then the cost has become so astronomical. You need to pretty much, you need to pull a, you know, if you're going to run, you're going to be like Bobby Jindal. You're going to just leave your state and take no uh, engine and, and take no continuation of running your state and go run as Don, a quixotic Don Quixote running for president. The odds are against you and you get plummeted back home. So it's a mix that good people lead. I thought Mitt Romney was a good public official, quite frankly. You see, he stepped down now and says he wants to, I think Romney is just early 70s, and he wants to leave it to younger people. Those younger people can't get any traction out there, Errol, uh, to really run this operation. So uh, uh, we're stuck with what we get. 
and our choice is quite frankly pretty slim. And on paper right now, I don't see how you can uh, keep the nomination away from Biden as a Democrat and Donald Trump unless the system, the judicial system, knocks knocks Trump out of out of contention. Okay, and the last thing, a totally different topic here, just a little geography, uh, Jerusalem. Um, you were planning on going there recently, why? I'm getting on a plane Monday morning. I'm not going as a tourist, and none of my family are going with me. And I'll tell you what sparked my interest, Harold, if I just take about, give you about two minutes. Uh, uh, I would, you know, I, I've always been interested in biblical literature, and I decided to kind of go through the, the Old Testament initially, and uh, uh, I did so, and I was reading uh, Genesis, and I, I, when I was reading the, the book of Genesis, I think chapter 10 in Genesis, uh, Adam eats the forbidden fruit, we all recall, and uh, God says to Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? That's the wording. Ayika is the phrase that's used. Adam, where are you? Ayika is the Arabic term. And uh, uh, and I got wondering, well, you know, if God's all-knowing, why is he asking where Adam is? Isn't he supposed to know? And I had that in the back of my mind. Well, my grandsons, a couple of my grandsons go to school up in New York uh, at a school up there. And in his class are grandsons of a very prominent writer named Ely Wazell. Uh, Wazell is a Pulitzer Prize winner, won the Nobel Peace Prize, has written a number of books, wrote the most uh, compelling book of the Holocaust called Night. And uh, his grandsons are there too. So we got talking and I asked him this question. I said, if you don't mind me asking, you're a biblical scholar, what did God mean by where are you? And he said, well, Jim, he wasn't asking where Adam was. He was asking, where are you with your life? Uh, what are your priorities? What have you accomplished? What do you still hope to get done? Where are you? And I got thinking about that, Earl, and I'm 83, and uh, I'd like to explore where I am, where Jim Brown is right now. And I thought, well, the best place to begin would be to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to, I'm not trying to grandstand or wear my religion on my sleeve. I'm going to go to where I think uh, Christianity began where Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. I want to go to, to uh, the Jordan River. I want to put my feet in the Jordan River. Uh, I want to go to where uh, Christ gave his Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, such a marvelous uh, uh, combination of how we should live our lives. I want to go on the fields and see that. I want to go walk the Villa uh, Della Rosa the route that Jesus took about 600 yards after he's convicted by Pilate up to where he was crucified. And I want to go to a couple of church services in Aramaic. You know, we, we have of this language, the Bible, uh, somebody said, well, uh, you know, Jesus had to know English because the Bible is all in English, you know? So, uh, well, Jesus spoke Aramaic and, and you had this oral history that a hundred years later was transferred into the Greek and then it went to the Latin, then it went to the German, then it went to Old English, then to Current English. What is lost in all those translations? So I want to go listen in Aramaic, uh, uh, the language that Jesus spoke. So anyway, it's just kind of a quest for me, and I'm looking forward to it. I've got a wonderful uh, pilgrimage location where I'm staying, and I'm going to spend about, about 10 days there. 
and uh, go to specific places. Again, I'm not going as a tourist. I am going to divert and going to the Holocaust Museum because I've, I've heard it's so compelling. And I have some Jewish friends that are going to have a Sabbat dinner for me on Friday night, uh, a week from tomorrow, rather uh, uh, early on a Friday night, I'm going to go. Anyway, I'm looking forward to an interesting, challenging trip, and maybe we'll have a chance to talk about it when I get back. I'd love to do that. Well, whatever you're looking for, I'm confident you're going to find it. So well, I, I hope I, hey, maybe I will. Uh, maybe the good Lord will speak to me. Probably he won't. But I think the journey is going to be important to me, Errol. Yeah, I'm sure it is. But for the moment, the answer to the question, where are you, is Baton Rouge. So, But having lived a fulfilling career, you know, and so and uh, more to do, more to look forward to. Jim, thank you very much. It's been a delight. Glad to be with you, Errol. And by the way, if any of your listeners want to see all my columns, they go yeah. to my website at jimbrownla.com is the website I have up. Okay. Thank you very much, Jim. Take care. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.